Well, so glad that you're here this morning. We're going to continue our series in the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be in chapter 21, looking at a very uh, brief passage, just four short verses. And uh, Chris Hefner said, I'm going to take four verses and turn it into 40 minutes. That's not the case. So, sorry, Chris. <coughs> just making sure you're staying awake back there. Yeah, it's 50 minutes. No. <laughs> We're going to look at a very short passage, but it's very interesting because it's, it's the story of Jesus' cursing of the fig tree and then instructions that Jesus gives in prayer. And essentially, the way that I've kind of titled this is the danger of false advertising. Now, I don't know if any of you have fallen victim to a scam. I did not know that I had so many relatives in Nigeria that had died and wanted to leave me money. Um, but I don't know if you've ever had that. The most recent one we fell, I got a, I got a phone call, oh, probably about three months ago from a, a phone number in New York saying that I was being audited by the IRS. Well, the problem is the IRS will never call you. They will send you a certified letter. Not that I know, but I, I called the IRS to figure out, all right, what's going on here? And they said, don't return the phone call. They're going to fleece you for everything that you've got. You may not have fallen victim to the Nigerian scam, or you may not have been threatened with being audited by the IRS, but I know something that has happened to you. Take a peek at this picture here. Has this ever happened to you? It's advertised like it is on the uh, left, but what you get is the thing on the right. Here's what's great about being a guy. I never really look at whatever I put into my mouth, or I would never eat fast food ever again. And so you go to the fast food place, and the commercials are awesome. They're perfectly put together, multi-layered. You wonder, how in the world am I going to fit that thing in my mouth? And then it looks like somebody stepped on it over here. They picked it up off the floor. I, I don't know if you're like me. I'm very hesitant to buy stuff off the Internet because, uh, listen, you can, it, it's, it's bad. You can get crazy. They can Photoshop stuff and make it look better than it is. Or you hear about a, a great used car, and they say everything's fine, and then you drive it 100 miles, and like the whole chassis falls off of it. You know, it's just bad. Look what happened to this kid. She thought she was going to get this awesome pool that all of her friends could swim in. And what she didn't know is all of those people's, people were extras in The Hobbit, and uh, they were really small. And so she thought, hey, I'm going to get this pool that all my friends get to swim in. And then it's like the size of a thimble. False advertising is a challenge. And we deal with it. We see the flyers and we see the advertisements. But the truth is, as we'll see in our passage this morning, false advertising is very much a danger spiritually too. We all want to give an aura off that we're much more spiritual than we actually really are. And Jesus has some very strong words about that. So it'll be page, uh, if you don't have a copy, your own copy of the scriptures, it'll be page 698 in the Pew Bibles there. And I encourage you to follow along. Let me read the passage uh, in its entirety. <clears throat> follow along with me. Matthew 21, 18 through 22. Early in the morning as he was returning to the city, Jesus was hungry. And seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he went up to it and he found nothing on it except four leaves. And Jesus said to the tree, May no fruit ever come from you again. And at once the fig tree withered. When the disciples saw it, they were amazed and said, How did the fig tree wither so quickly? And Jesus answered them, I assure you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you tell this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. And if you believe... 
you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. You saw a little video clip reminding you about the apologetics series that we have. And we're reminded that we're given multiple eyewitness accounts for what happens in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are specifically referred to as the synoptic gospels. Now, you may never use that word synoptic in your everyday conversation, but you know what it is if you stop and you break the word apart into its pieces. Sin, meaning with. Optic, meaning to see. So it is seeing with. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all kind of have the same perspective on the gospel story. John is very different, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. The best illustration for this would be, why do we need these three gospels if they're so similar? It would be like someone observing an accident at three different corners of an intersection. They're all going to have a slightly different perspective based on their angle uh, and their perspective of looking at it. And so you find something really interesting about the chronology because Mark records this exact same episode in Mark chapter 11, but Mark's desire is to uh, teach the lesson chronologically where Matthew is compressing it and dealing with with it thematically. Here's what you find out when you look at Mark's presentation is Mark takes the story of the fig tree and he breaks it into two parts, into two episodes, and in the middle of that is the cleansing of the temple. Matthew has the cleansing of the temple, the praise of the kids, and then the story of the fig tree. And what this whole passage is really about is this whole idea that is a very difficult teaching, but one that we as disciples need to hear, and it's this, that Jesus deserves a faith that bears fruit. Jesus deserves a faith that bears fruit. And what becomes very clear when we compare Matthew's arrangement with Mark's is that there is a very clear association between the cleansing of the temple and the cursing of the tree. One of the things that I think is really neat about this story is uh, in that quick apologetics video, they talked about embarrassing testimony. Well, there is some of that right here in this passage. The New Testament writers were completely unembarrassed with talking about Jesus's humanity. They certainly believed that he was God. They believed in the resurrection, but they don't have any problem with saying Jesus is going for a walk and he is hungry. He's hungry. They're not embarrassed at his humanity. And if the New Testament writers were so maniacal at trying to manipulate the information, this would have certainly been edited out. This is one of those things that confirms the testimony of the scriptures. In Mark's gospel, he specifically notes that it is not the time, uh, uh, time of the season for figs to be produced. So the question comes to us, why in the world would Jesus curse this fig tree? Is he just, you've seen the Snickers commercial, is he just hangry, hungry and angry at the same time? Um, in the South, we call that being ornery. Is Jesus here being ornery and he's hungry and the fig tree doesn't have figs? So doggone it, curse you tree, no fruit from you ever. That's not what is going on. Here's what's happening. You could have a tree with no leaves. As a matter of fact, that's kind of what you expect when it's not in season. And so this tree is along the side of the road, and it calls attention to itself by sprouting leaves, which implies fruit. It put up a road sign on the side of the road advertising that it had fruit when it had none. And so it's not cursed because it's not bearing fruit. It's cursed because it promised fruit, yet offered 
none. It had leaves on the outside, but no fruit on the inside. And so Jesus is here condemning showy fruitlessness. Here's the point. If you're going to look the part, you had better live the part. If you're going to look the part, you had better live the part. And here's, I think, kind of how the storyline kind of fleshes out and finds its fulfillment for this kind of living illustration that Jesus gives. Judaism claimed and appeared to worship God. But when God in the flesh showed up, they rejected him. This outward, (coughs) excuse me, showiness of devotion to God, but when God shows up, they don't want anything to do with him. Now let me be very clear. This is this is probably, I don't know, this is one of those things that I struggled in the first service with the way to say it, and I haven't found a better way to say it here in the second service, even though I've had time to think about it. We are mystified in our culture that we don't understand the connection between biology and gender anymore. Okay? That, that's a crazy thing. I mean, like we know when you're born what your gender is. And now we've drawn a great divorce between your biology and your gender identity. Like the two don't go together. And as Christians, while we get very mystified and perhaps uh, just a tad bit upset at the political movement that is going on, there is a way in which we have condoned this. Because we may not, we may not be for transgenderism, but we have trans-committed Christians all over our churches. We have people that it is so easy for them to walk an aisle and join a church and never be back again. And we don't know if like, Christians should actually go to church. We don't know if Christians should actually share the gospel. We don't know if Christians should actually read the Bible because we provide zero accountability. And now we allow people to name the name of Christ who have no fruit in their life. And Jesus is here condemning a fruitlessness that wants to claim the benefit of a relationship with Christ without Christian commitment. Friend, this is a huge, huge problem that we as a church allow people to say that they represent Christ and his church with no Christian commitment. And we wonder why in our churches when we don't hold people accountable for saying that they profess something that we don't, we want to complain that people are confused about gender. There's no accountability. The question, I think, really comes down to this, very personally. And this is not a question that I can answer for you. But do you have a faith that is bearing fruit? Do you have a faith that is bearing fruit? We certainly know, especially in this particular political illustration that I used, that open sin and belligerent disbelief will slay its thousands. It will. But profession without practice will slay its tens of thousands. Don't think for a moment that open sin is worse for a second than people who make a profession with no practice of living out the Christian faith. And we wonder why non-Christians think that the church is made up of hypocrites. It's because we have endorsed it. We We have allowed people to not live out their faith and consider themselves members in good standing of their churches. So listen to what the scriptures say about people who honor God with their lips, yet their hearts are far away. John chapter 15, verse 8. 
Jesus himself says, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Ezekiel 33, 30 through 32. Powerful illustration. Now, son of man, your people are talking about you near the city walls and in the doorways of their houses. One person speaks to another, each saying to his brother, come and hear what the message is that comes from the Lord. So my people come to you in crowds and they sit in front of you and they hear your words, but they don't obey them. Although they express love with their mouths, their hearts pursue dishonest profit. Yes, to them, you are like a singer of love songs who has a beautiful voice and plays skillfully on an instrument. That's certainly not the case here. They hear your words, but they don't obey them. Isaiah 29, 13. These people approach me with their mouths to honor me with lip service, yet their hearts are far from me. Unless you think that this is solely an Old Testament problem, James 1, 22 through 25, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but one who does good works, this person will be blessed in what he does. I think you're here this morning partly because you want to know what a blessed life from God looks like. Wouldn't it be wonderful to walk out of here with the assurance that you can know that you have the blessing of God upon your life? The Bible says here very clearly that the blessed life is the fruit-bearing life. Certainly for us who are disciples of Christ, bearing fruit is an expectation for everyone who names the name of Christ. There will be seasons in which we will bear fruit with greater frequency and greater purity, and there will be seasons where maybe the fruit doesn't look quite the way that it did the season before. But a Christian who has the Spirit of God living inside them will always and finally bear fruit in their life. Our second point looks at the last half of the passage here this morning. And the point is this, that Jesus deserves a faith that believes fervently. Jesus deserves a faith that believes fervently. The disciples are amazed at the withering of the tree. And they ask, how did this happen? And Jesus says in verse 21, I assure you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you tell this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. And if you believe, you will receive whatever you Ask for in prayer. Have you ever made a difficult prayer request and mustered up as much faith as it's possible for you to muster up and then been disappointed with the results? Read this passage and go, I guess I didn't have enough faith. I guess my faith was deficient in some way. I think there's a lot of people that read this passage and they're kind of hurt by it because they thought that they had faith. They thought that they were doing things the right way. What does this passage talk about? Because who doesn't want to experience answered prayer and power to do incredible things, to be obedient to God and to testify to who He is? I think sometimes we get this passage out of context. Because one of the things we have to recognize is Jesus draws a little bit of an illustration. He says, not only will you do 
what was done to this fig tree, pronouncing uh, accountability on it. You're showing leaves but not bearing fruit. And his curse is actually a form of accountability to a tree that is advertising fruit but doesn't have any. And then he draws an analogy to not just making a fig tree wither, but to picking up a mountain and throwing it away. And here's the issue. Jesus says he is traveling with his disciples. He's traveling from Bethany to Jerusalem. Jesus didn't just talk about any mountain in particular. He said, this mountain with specificity. Not these mountains, not that mountain. It is this mountain. And as you pay attention to the geography of how they're traveling... There's not many options when you think about what was occupying their vision as they're traveling up to Jerusalem. It was Mount Zion, the holy mountain. And Jesus says that essentially if we have faith and we learn how to pray the right way for the right things, for the right motives, for the glory of God, not for ourselves, that we'll even be able to tell this mountain to get out of the way because it's an obstacle for following Jesus. What had happened? The Jewish people had created all of these laws that became an obstacle to actually having a relationship with Christ. And I find it rather interesting that when John the Baptist is uh, reported what kind of ministry he was of taking obstacles out of the way, that it said the mountains will be brought low and the, the path will be made wide and the way will be made straight for people to find their way to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, if we're serious about following God and bearing fruit, then we'll be able to pray that whatever obstacle is in people's way to having faith in Christ will be removed, even if it means the entire destruction of a world religion. Judaism will be thrown away and tossed in the sea so that people can make their way to Christ if this is the obstacle. And I think so many times we just have this temptation to make our prayer life about me, myself, and I. And we don't understand that Jesus is saying that we'll have power in prayer as we learn to pray for the right things for God to be glorified. And I think when he says, you'll be able to say to this mountain, this mountain, he's foreshadowing the destruction of the Jewish sacrificial system. Regardless of your interpretation of this verse, it becomes very clear that God desires for us to ask many things of Him and great things of Him. And He says that the answer for this, uh, the, 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 the way to experience answered prayer is to have a prayer life that expresses fervent belief, passionate belief, commitment to God. And you want to know how you can know if you have fervent belief? I'm passionate about believing in God. How do you know? I think there's a really simple question. What have you asked God for in prayer most recently? What have you asked God for in prayer most recently? And my my fear is, if we started here with Reed and went all the way through the congregation and had you come up on the stage and you had 30 seconds of the microphone to talk about your prayer life, the chances are that what you prayed for were things for your own comfort and convenience and not for the glory of God. You're praying for Jesus to be your little genie to make your life easier and you weren't praying for God to do what was necessary to make you bear fruit in your life. God, I want to bear fruit. Okay, Scott, well, I'm going to have to do a lot of pruning and it's going to hurt. Well, maybe not. (laughs) Well, God, do whatever you need to do to make me be a fruit bearer. Because oftentimes ourselves and our own glory are chief most in our prayers. And we're not praying for the things that God desires. And here's the thing. 
you can kind of set yourself up to experience answered prayer by praying for the things that God desires. Maybe he doesn't want you to have the first parking spot at Publix. Think about that. You know, maybe he doesn't want you to, you know, win season tickets to the Carolina Panthers. Yet we waste our time praying on pitifully tedious issues. It's not anything about God's glory involved in them. <clears throat> I think one of the things that happens sometimes when we talk about prayer, we have to learn to laugh at ourselves a little bit because I don't know many people who don't see lots of room for improvement in their prayer life. And as you think about somebody who's not a Christian who maybe comes into our churches and listens to how we talk about prayer, how goofy it's got to sound sometimes. So I've got a quick video clip. It's about two minutes long from a, a Christian comedian talking about his experience with prayer. I remember going to church as an adult, right, for the first time when I started going to church. And I would walk in, and the pastor was like, he said, I want you to pray with your neighbor. And I'm like, well, my neighbor don't go to this church. I don't know. If you, want to... you want me to call my neighbor on the phone? That's creepy. I ain't going to do that. Right? Then they explained to me, right, your neighbor is a person sitting next to you. Listen, I'm brand new at this Christian stuff. I don't, not, I didn't even know you're supposed to pray out loud, let alone with this lady. I don't even know this lady. What am I supposed to pray about? Lord, help these bumps go down on this lady's face. I don't know. I'm gonna... I don't know what to pray about. I don't know what I'm supposed to pray about, right? She went first. She was praying all good, and she must have been John the Baptist's little sister or something. <laughs> she was like, Dear Heavenly Father, you said in your word in the sixth chapter, the third, third verse of the book of Matthew, the 601st word on page 1248. <laughs> Lord, you said, but seek. S is in search. E is in everywhere. E is in excellent. K is in kingdom. <laughs> you are the Alpha Nisi, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rapha. I'm thinking, man, she even know his nicknames. <laughs> now, it's my turn to pray, right? But I don't got the spiritual vocabulary to just, but I'm not going to let her out pray me. So I'm like, okay, God, first of all, you are good people. You know, you are good, Lord. You are good. You are good to the last drop, Lord. Because, um, Lord, I, I just got to obey my thirst, Lord. You know, because choosy moms choose Jesus. So, Lord, because, you know, as the, as the rocket's red glare, Lord, it gave proof to the night, Lord. I believe I can fly, amen. Oh, I'll get in trouble for that later. <laughs> Have you ever found yourself the victim of cliche prayers? You ever found yourself stuck in a rut? You know, I love the story about the deacon who was falling asleep in the back of the church. And he got called on to pray and was startled out of his sleep. And he said, Lord, we just want to thank you for this food. You know, <laughs> he was so used to praying the same way. And I don't want you to be distracted by the humor. But I, I want you to notice that even for somebody like this, prayer became a competition. Talking to our Father 
It becomes a competition. It becomes something else, an intimate conversation with the God who made us and wants what is best in our life, even if we don't understand it. So here's the question. There is so much confusion about what an obedient prayer life looks like. I just want to give you three quick things to help you understand what a fervent, non-doubting, faithful prayer life looks like. And at the outset, I want to give you an encouragement. Because if I asked you to raise hands on who could, uh, who could use a little improvement in your prayer life, I think all of us would probably do that. So let me start with this illustration. <clears throat> Praying is a lot like coloring. Now for some of you, you ain't colored nothing in a long time. But if you happen to be in our preschool department here this morning and you gave a bunch of preschoolers a sheet to color and some crayons, here is what you would find. They would choose the most inappropriate colors for people uh, possible. There are, there are red, yellow, black, and white, but I don't think that there are any purple people. And there would indubitably be someone who is colored purple with, you know, some weird color hair. And, and the other hallmark of a preschool coloring would be that they, those lines are just merely suggestions. They're going to get all over the sheet. <clears throat> the challenge is by the time your kid's 16, if they're choosing uh, radically weird colors for people, um, Listen, there may not be any standard definition for hair color in the future. I, I don't know what's going on with that. But they should learn how to make what shows up on that page some semblance, some resemblance to what looks, it looks like in reality. They should stay in the lines. They should choose appropriate colors. And prayer is just like that. When we start off, we say the wrong things, you know, the rocket's a red glare. But as we progress, we learn how to choose the right words. We learn how to color in the lines. We mature in our ability. But three things that I think are important to come out of this passage, believing prayer, number one, is focused on Jesus, not the obstacle. I think that's the key to interpreting this whole passage about Jesus talking about this mountain. This mountain, if it is Mount Zion, had become an obstacle to knowing Jesus. As a matter of fact, the people who ran the mountain, the temple, were the ones who were most adamantly opposed to Jesus. And Jesus is just saying, listen, I don't care what the obstacles are in your life. Don't focus on the obstacle. Focus on Christ. You want to have answer to prayer? Don't focus on your problems. Focus on what God is doing for you and in you and through you in the problem. Don't focus on the obstacle. Focus on Jesus. Number two, believing prayer is focused on public mission, not private welfare. We could stop there, have the invitation, and we'd all need to repent because we pray so much about ourselves. Some, some have even said that church prayer meetings have devolved into nothing more than organ recitals. Pray for my Grant Gertrude's kidney, and she's got a corn, and she's got this, and all we talk about are people's organs that are failing, and it becomes an organ recital and not a conversation with our Father. And the truth is we are constantly tempted to focus on ourselves when we pray because we are our own favorite subject. Not God, not His glory, not anybody else. Me, myself, and I. I'm reminded of the story of a young lady who had made a commitment that she was not going to pray for herself but only to pray for other people. And she was two days into this commitment and she had done marvelous the first day. But as she was closing in prayer, on the second day, she closed this way by asking God to give her mother a very handsome son-in-law. Some of you will get that later. <clears throat> we can't avoid 
praying for ourselves, and we'll dress it up and make it sound like we're interceding for someone else, when in reality we are praying for ourselves. We are to pray for public mission, for God to be glorified, not just for our own uh, secret advantage. And see, believing prayer is focused on God's grandeur and not our own glory. Believing prayer is focused on God's grandeur and not our own glory. There are ways that you can pray for yourself, okay? We've just said you don't need to make yourself the subject. But there are ways that you can pray for yourself that give God glory. Okay, let me give you an example. I cannot pray with confidence that I will always enjoy good health. Can't do it. You know, I'm one accident away. I'm one you know, false step away, one uh, doctor's visit away from bad health, and so are you. I cannot pray with confidence that I will always enjoy good health, and that doesn't glorify God. That's just seeking for my own comfort. But I can pray with confidence that whatever my health is, that I may be pleasing to Him. You see the difference? I am still praying for myself, but I'm praying in a way that is seeking God's glory, that I bear fruit that I focus on what he wants, but I'm still praying for myself. I'm just praying for his grandeur and not for my own personal glory. If there's anything that becomes clear in this passage, that God desires for all Christians to be fruit-bearing. The challenge is the power for us to bear fruit isn't in us. Jesus himself said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, you will bear much fruit, for apart from me, you can only do a wee little bit. Is that what it says? He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And don't you think Jesus should be at least a little excited that you're on his team? Because you can do something for Jesus. No, the Bible says you can do nothing. There is no spiritual good in you. There is no spiritual health in you. You need an alien power. You need a power from outside of yourself to help you to bear fruit. So at the very bottom of your outline, there's this little relationship here. We need power. And we need power from God to allow us to build fruit, to bear fruit. We need power. And that power comes through a relationship with God. You're not, you're not going to go to 7-Eleven and get the power. The power comes through a relationship. Well, how is that relationship built? How is that relationship made manifest? It is made manifest through our prayer life. You cannot have a relationship with a person that you never talk to. It's a figment. It's fake. It's not real. So if we want power, we need a relationship. And for us to have that relationship, we build it through prayer. Prayer is evidence of a relationship with God, and it is the avenue to the power to not pray selfishly, but to pray for God's glory. There's a story told of a town in Massachusetts that was very proud of the fact that they did not have uh, a tavern to sell alcohol. And inevitably, the day came when a man moved into the town and was going to build a tavern because he figured there's no other taverns here. This is a wonderful place for me to open my business. <clears throat> so all of the Christians in this town gathered together for an all-night prayer vigil to pray against this tavern opening up. And in the midst of their prayer vigil, a storm happened to roll into town in which lightning struck the tavern and burnt it to the ground. Well, the tavern owner was very quick to get a lawyer and to sue the church 
holding them accountable for their prayer vigil in the burning of his tavern. The Christians, of course, disavowed any responsibility, hired their own lawyer, and said, it's not our fault. Well, the judge that had the responsibility of adjudicating this matter said, no matter how it turns out, it becomes very clear that the tavern owner believes in the power of prayer and that the Christians do not. Do we believe that there's power in prayer? There is. We don't ask for the right stuff. We set ourselves up for failure, believing God is more interested in our comfort and convenience than we are ourselves. And we turn God into a genie of, instead of learning to pray for the things that he delights to offer. I could give you suggestions. You, you, you don't want to pray this prayer, but I can tell you that this is a prayer God would desire to grant in your life, to pray, God, I'm terrible at sharing the gospel, so I need practice. You know what happened? Someone will cross your pathway that you will have your chance to share the gospel. The question is whether you'll be faithful or not. God, I want to be more like Jesus. That's a prayer he loves to answer. But there may be pain and difficulty that's involved in him answering your prayer. There are prayers we can pray that set up answered prayer in a beautiful way. I'll close with this illustration and see where you find yourself in this story. It's been said that prayer... It's kind of like grabbing a hold of a rope that goes all the way up to heaven that is connected to a bell that we get to ring right next to God's throne. The problem is, the way that some of us ring that bell, it barely sounds like the most meager ding-dong you'll ever hear. You barely hear the bell. Most of us go through life and we just give it an occasional jerk when we get in trouble. We throw up a flare prayer, you know, come rescue me. But there's no building of a relationship, and if there's no building of a relationship, there's no release of spiritual power for God to conform us to his image and make us pray the right things. But there are those precious, precious few saints of God who truly communicate with their Heavenly Father. Because when they grab a hold of that rope, they ring that bell so that everyone in heaven hears it because they pull with boldness and regularity. So, friend, how do you pray? Is it silent in heaven because your grasp of that rope is so weak and inadequate? Or does everybody know when you pray? Because everybody in heaven hears that bell ring. Friend, there's a connection between fruit bearing and answered prayer. I pray that you discover what that secret is. Pray with me, please. Father, you tell us in your word that if we are lacking, we have not because we ask not. And there are many of us, as we talk about our practice of prayer, that would confess uh, just a lack of answers to prayer. And God, the problem is not the act of praying, and it's not that somehow you are just too occupied to hear the things that we pray for. It's that our prayers themselves are um, below grade, they're selfish. They're self-motivated, they're self-interest, they're self-righteous. And God, we don't really fully understand our complete need for independence upon you. God, I pray that you help us to examine our hearts this morning when it comes to our practice of prayer and our bearing of fruit. And that you grant us the grace of repentance to bow before you and say, God, you have done for me what I could not do. You have provided a Savior, forgiveness of sins, the indwelling of your Spirit. And help us to be fed up with ourselves 
to want more of you and your power, that we might see great and mighty things done, not for our self-aggrandizement, but for the glory of our great God and King. I pray these things in the mighty and matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.